Have you ever changed your plans? Have you ever said that you'd do one thing but then changed your mind and done something else? I'm sure we all have. And so I think today's Bible reading can be a little bit strange when we first read it, not because we're trying to work out um, what's happening because it is a bit um, all over the place, but also because it seems that this whole passage this morning is about the Apostle Paul changing his travel plans. Indeed, that's what it is about. Uh, Basically, Paul said that he was going to visit the Corinthian church twice, but he changed his mind and now he's only going to visit them once. And yet this quite long and detailed part of the Bible is given over to it. And if you're like me, um, when you first read it, you're left thinking, I mean, so what? Is this really that important that Paul just changed his mind, that we need to have a whole um, chapter of the Bible over it and getting preached on all over the world? And the surprise of the passage as we read it is that, yes, this is important. It is a very big deal if someone says one thing and does another thing. It's a big deal to Paul and the Corinthians. It should be a big deal to us too. It's a big deal because to God, words matter. Sincerity matters. What we say, what we promise to do matters. Whether we actually come good on our promises matters. Now as we read this section Uh, It can be a little bit confusing, so I thought we'd have the old map um, to help us work it out. And um, beautiful. If you remember back to last week, Paul was at Ephesus and um, things were blowing up on the opposite side of the Mediterranean on the other bank at Corinth, where the church is. And it seems that Paul has just ripped into the Corinthians by sending them a letter that has called them to some certain action, but it's upset them. And as a follow-up to his letter, Paul told the Corinthians that he would visit them twice. Have a look at 2 Corinthians 1, verse 15. Because I was confident of this, I planned to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. In other words, Paul from Ephesus wants to head up right up to the corner there in Macedonia, and his plan was that he'd actually visit the Corinthians on the way up. See, that's Corinth, and he's going to pass them on the way up. And then he's going to visit them again on the way back. They're going to get two visits. See, verse 16, I plan to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. That was his plan. But his plan changed. Chapter 2, verse 1, I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. And so Paul actually went to Macedonia the other way. In verse 12, we find he went this way, up through Troas. It's like he's taken the Mudgee Road instead of going through Orange. And now the Corinthians will only get one visit because he'll visit them on the way back still, but not on the way up. And of course, they're a little bit disappointed. I mean, it is disappointing when you're looking forward to someone visiting and then they don't, isn't it? But this whole chapter is not just about the Corinthians being disappointed. It matters more than just that. And as we read on, we see why it matters. Point two on your outlines. It matters because it's important that Paul can be trusted. He's the one who's speaking the very words of God to them. How can a messenger from God 
speak words that are not true, even if they are just about his travel plans. That's the problem. Verse 17. When I planned this uh, to come to Corinth, did I do it lightly? Do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say, yes, yes, and no, no? But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. This is a big deal to Paul because he says there's a worldly way of making plans and there's a godly way. The worldly way of making plans is just to say yes, yes, and no, no in the same breath. In other words, you say yes, but you mean no. You say one thing, but you, you don't really carry through on it. Your words aren't actually a commitment to anything. You don't want to be bound by what you say. And so you speak these kind of words that are a bit yes, they're a bit no, they don't actually carry any weight. I mean, to my shame, I actually catch myself doing that quite often. Just last week, I was in my study. The boys were out the back playing cricket. They came in, they're having an argument over who should be bowling. One thought the other one should be bowling, and his turned the bat, so on. And uh, I, I was just busy. I settled it by saying, look, have a break, boys. Go inside and play, and I'll come out and play some cricket with you in a little while. But I didn't, as it turned out. I didn't get out there to play cricket with them. Now, uh, I could have just said that I'd forgotten, and in a way I had forgotten, but it was more than that, because if it was really important to me, I wouldn't have forgotten. I actually said I'd go out to play cricket with them because I just wanted to kind of get this problem to go away quickly. And when I made the promise, I probably didn't intend to keep it. I mean, it was my intention to go out and play cricket, but if I had finished early, I might have gone and played cricket, but I wasn't really committed to it, was I? That was a kind of yes and no promise. Come inside, I'll come out and play cricket. Empty words. That's a terrible thing. If you live like that, people will learn not to trust you. Now, the sad thing is I hear people talking like that at church. I mean, I think sometimes I do. We must have you around for dinner sometime. Yeah, it'll be good. Let's get together. Uh, I'll drop it into you sometime. Um, I'll get back to you but then not followed up with action. That is what Paul calls the worldly way of making plans. Those kinds of weak promises are not befitting of a follower of Jesus. If we want to have credibility with people, we need to be people whose words carry weight. When we say something, we mean it, and the person who's listening knows we mean it because that's how God acts. God doesn't promise things that he never intends on following through with. God doesn't make promise and then abandon his promise because it's inconvenient. Look at verse 18. As surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. See, God is a God who keeps his word. God made many promises in the Old Testament that he'd rescue people from sin, that he'd provide comfort to his people, that he'd pour out his spirit on his people, that he'd give them a secure hope of eternal life, and all those promises were fulfilled in Jesus. And as Jesus approached the cross, uh, and as he prayed in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, God didn't change his mind. God didn't abandon his promises because they were inconvenient. 
He carried through. And we need to be people who are faithful to what we promise, even when it's inconvenient. And to Paul's credit here, he was the kind of person who meant what he said. He didn't let people down. In fact, he points to his own life to prove it. Verse 12 of chapter 1. This is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you, Corinthians, in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We've not done so according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. Now, I reckon that's quite a challenging statement, isn't it? I wonder if you could say to the people around you, you know me. I never change my mind. If I say something, I'll do it. I always carry through with what I do. You know me. Certainly not my strong point. And what's more, it's not just a trivial matter. It actually matters because when the gospel is called into question by people trying to slander us, how you have behaved in the past matters. Paul's reputation here is called into question and he can say to the Corinthians, you know me. You know I'm true to my word. So we've seen that Paul has had a change of plans. We've seen that sincerity matters a great deal to him, which I think begs the question, and it is the big unanswered question up to this point, if Paul was a sincere person, why did he change his mind? Because he said he would go and then he didn't. And that's the point of this whole chapter. He wants to explain it to them. He didn't change his mind out of fickleness. It wasn't that when he said he'd visit them twice, he didn't really mean it. He wasn't avoiding Corinth because it was inconvenient for him. He reconsidered his plans and decided for their sake that the best thing to do was not to visit them. Have a look at verse 23. I call God, chapter 123, sorry. I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. See, it was for their sake. There's been a huge blow up in the church between Paul and the Corinthians. Verse 4 says of chapter 2, I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart with many tears. He's upset them. And he thinks if he visits too soon, the events of the past might be too raw. On, On the other hand, if he waits a little while... He's confident that time will heal things and the Corinthians will realise that what Paul did, he did out of love. He's not ignoring the problem and hoping that it'll go away. He has confronted them over it in his letter. Now he wants to put a bit of time, a bit of space between the letter and his visit. That's not the end of it though because it seems that people in Corinth were saying that because of this change of plan, Paul didn't care for them. And so this whole next section, verse 5 to 11, he wants to assure the church that He does actually care for them. He doesn't hold any grudges against them. And I think that concern is seen most strongly down in verse 12. And this is the last little passage that we'll look at. Paul says that he was so concerned for the Corinthian church that he actually gave up a gospel opportunity in Troas in favour of finding out how the Corinthians were going. Look at verse 12 and then let me explain it. Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind, 
because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. Now, what's all that about going to Troas and finding Titus? Well, here in Troas, um, where Paul goes through on his way to Macedonia, God opens a door for Paul for the gospel. So people are getting converted. People are hearing the news about Jesus and responding. Uh, People are hearing that Jesus died for them. They're becoming Christians, which is very exciting for Paul. I mean, that's what he's there for, to preach the gospel. What does Paul do with this great door that God has opened? Well, Paul ignores the door and he heads on to Macedonia because he wants to find Titus. Titus is on the way up from Corinth because he's just visited the Corinthians and he has news for Paul from the Corinthians. In other words, even though things are looking great on, on Paul's mission trip in Troas, he's so worried about the Corinthians that he heads on to Macedonia. He's really concerned for the Corinthians. Now, just reflect on that. It's quite staggering, isn't it? I mean, when you think about guidance and that kind of thing, doesn't it sound a bit strange to you? God opens a door for Paul in, in um, Troas, and then Paul kind of shuts that door, gives up a gospel opportunity in order to find out about the Corinthian church. I mean, shouldn't he have stayed in Troas and preached the gospel and, well, he would have found out about the Corinthians in a few days? If God opens a door, shouldn't you take it? And I think Paul anticipates that that's the question that will get asked, and he goes on to answer it in verse 14. Basically, Paul doesn't care where he is. Because wherever he goes, he can tell people about Jesus. The location doesn't matter. Verse 14, Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. See, the fragrance of the gospel goes everywhere with Paul. You can't not notice it. It doesn't matter matter whether he's in Troas and the doors are open. It doesn't matter whether he's in Macedonia, and he he actually finds it pretty tough in Macedonia. Wherever he is, the gospel will go forward. It's like the um, smell coming out of the subway shop at Arana Mall when you're on your way out. You can't not notice it. It's just there in your face. Or it's like a different kind of smell. It's like having uh, perhaps a dead rat or a dead mouse somewhere in the house. It doesn't matter whether it's in the bedroom. It doesn't matter whether it's in the kitchen or in the lounge room. It'll get noticed wherever it is. Now, it's the same with the gospel. doesn't matter where Paul is. In Troas, where people are open to the gospel and it's like the beautiful fragrance of life, or in Macedonia, where people are opposed to the gospel and it's like the stench of death. Whether it's a good smell or whether it's a bad smell, the important thing to Paul is that wherever he goes, he's proclaiming the gospel. And he's confident about that. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To one we are the smell of death. To the other we are the fragrance of life. And who's equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for a profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity like men sent from God. And then we end our passage there with exactly the same word that was in the first verse of this section, sincerity. And by now I hope you see why sincerity is so important to Paul. Because above all, Paul wants to tell people about Jesus. 
He wants to be a messenger of the gospel. And so to spread that news, he needs to be sincere. You can't just be making empty promises and then from the same mouth speak to people about Jesus and expect them to believe it. And that's why keeping your word is so important. Somehow the gospel actually depends on it. If you're the kind of person who can say things that you don't mean, then how do people know when to trust you? I mean, if if you've said, we must have you around for dinner sometime, and you've said it ten times, and you've never had anyone over, people have probably worked you out by now. And so when you say to them, oh, look, I'll pray for you, do you think that'll bring them any comfort? How can it if if they know that you're not going to do it? I'll pray for you. It can be probably the most comforting words that you can say to a person if you mean it. And I know when some people say it and they mean it, and it's very encouraging when people say that to you. I'll pray for you, and you know they will. But how dare we say it if we're not actually intending to pray for them? When you actually say, I'll pray for you, it conveys a lot, doesn't it? It says that you're a person of prayer. It says that you care for the person that you're praying for. It says that they matter to you. And so what a a temptation it can be when someone tells you something that's going on in their life that you just say, I'll pray for you. Maybe to fill a gap. Maybe it just seems the right thing to say. And yet, well, you may pray for them or you may not. It depends on if you remember. If you don't mean it, don't say it. It was a couple of years ago, I found myself saying, I'll pray for you, whenever someone told me something they were struggling with. And I found myself saying it more to comfort them than actually intending to pray for them. And sometimes I would pray and sometimes I'd forget. Now that's terrible. And I realised that. And so I decided right then and there, whenever I say, I'll pray for you, I actually would. And if I didn't plan right then and there that in the next day that I could, I wouldn't say it. And it actually meant that I said those words less, I'll pray for you. But I actually prayed for people more because when I said it, I meant it. See, what we say matters. We should be able to say, like Paul, we have conducted ourselves among you with the sincerity that is from God. That's what all our preachers and Bible study leaders should be like here at DPC. That's what we should all be like. People who don't speak out of convenience, people whose words carry meaning because we mean what we say. And don't think it doesn't matter. It matters. It's a gospel issue because we are here to spread the aroma of Jesus and to do that, We need to be sincere. Let's pray. Our Father God, we as we live in this world, we realise that as humans we do make promises that we, we don't keep. And we've all been hurt by other people when they've made promises to us that they didn't keep. 
And so, Father, we praise you and we thank you that you are a God who keeps his promises. Thank you that you don't abandon your promises to us because they're too inconvenient. Thank you that you don't change your mind about your promises. Thank you that all your promises in the Old Testament, great as they were and costly as they were, were fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, thank you that the privilege it is for us that our words can, can be words that bring life as we share the gospel with people. And so, Father, we pray that we might see the importance of being people who are sincere like you are. Father, help us never to um, make promises that we don't intend on keeping. Help us to be thoughtful about the words that we say. And we pray that we might be people whose words are trusted. And so we pray that when we have the opportunities to share the gospel with people, they will listen to us. And we pray that many people might be saved. Amen.